0: Hi everyone, I'm Ikra Guftachima Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today we will talk with Dr. Rupal Oza about her new book, Semiotics of Rape, Sexual Subjectivity and Violation in Rural India, which was published by Duke University Press in December 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today. So starting with the first question, could you please introduce yourself and your work to the audience?
1: Sure. Thank you, Ikra, for um, hosting me and for inviting me to have a conversation. So um, I am a professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies at Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York. I also teach at the Graduate Center, which is also part of the City University of New York.
0: Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this work. How did you start working on the book?
1: So I guess part of the uh, way in which I began to think about this book was obviously in the set of conversations that have swirled around both in South Asia, but elsewhere after 2012, when a young physiotherapy woman by the name of Jyoti Singh was raped and murdered in Delhi, and um, which led to a national uprising and protests that came out in multiple cities, including Delhi, but sort of all over the country. And it sort of spoke of a reckoning of sorts in terms of the fact that there was a moment, it felt like, where gender-based violence was getting a certain kind of resonance amongst people that had not, you know, uh, come out to protest before or hadn't thought about it. Of course, this, you know, while definitely spontaneous, one has to also bear in mind that this was also the result of decades of organizing by feminist groups across the country. So not only was that something that was sort of in my mind and I was thinking about it, but I was also thinking um, and reading things that Dalit feminists and others were writing about the silences, which is that when Dalit women have been raped and murdered and killed, it has not sort of elicited the same degree of national outrage that Nirbhaya's case did. So that was part of sort of um, the things that were in my head. And some of the things um, that particularly sparked this was a case in a village called Bhagana, which I do write about in the book, um, which is in Haryana, where four um, Dalit women were gang raped and were found in Bhatinda railway station about several hours away, away in Punjab. So um, the protests and organizing that Dalit activists and lawyers, as well as civil rights groups and um, feminist groups and others began to organize around the case, revealed that the case was not only about sort of gang rape of these Dalit women by Jat men, Jat is the dominant caste in Haryana, that's an agricultural caste. But it was also a story that revealed issues around land and issues around dispossession and conflicts that had been going around between um, sort of subordinate and uh, um, caste um, Dalits and marginalized people and poor people and dominant caste and class jarts in the village. And so when I read about that story, there was something that is pertinent about the ways in which caste politics, that is about, whether it's dominant or Dalit or OBC, which is other backward classes, as well as the question of political economy seemed to sort of come together. And much of my work and much of my sort of thinking in, you know, the last two decades of of, uh, research has really revolved around the question of thinking about the relationship between gender, violence, and political economy. So much of my work has been thinking about though, how is it those three things come together. So in some ways, this book emerges from the crucible of thinking about those sorts of issues since the early 2000s and after, particularly after 2012.
0: Thanks for sharing that. So um, how would you describe the book? What is Semiotics of Rape? Okay,
1: so... It's a book that's based on empirical research. Much of my research, even my first book, was based on empirical work. And what that really means is sort of work that you do in uh, conversations with, in collaboration with, in talking with uh, people that are um, based in a particular place. I'm trained as a feminist geographer. And so part of the work that I do is really thinking about space in particular kinds of ways. So when I started to do this work in um, rural Haryana, um, it was a deliberate choice because as you rightly pointed out in our conversation before we started talking, that so much of um, the debate and writing about um, sexual assault, whether here or um, in the US or in Europe or anywhere else, particularly in the wake of the Me Too movement, has in some ways um, either directly or indirectly, sort of centered around urban places. And my first book in some ways was sort of urban-based, even though it was talking at a different scale. Um, uh, So I really wanted to focus on a rural area. And Haryana is 60% rural. And so, again, as I said, the Bhagana case sort of motivated me and I began to um, go to Haryana and talk to people there. And the thing that emerged in my conversations with folks that I was talking with was everybody had a story to tell about sexual violence, had a different way to understand and interpret it. So semiotics in some ways is a story not so much about why rape happens. I think that question we have and lots of people write about it, but really is a question about what happens when a rape case gets filed. Who gets involved in it? What do they have to say about it? How do the courts interpret it? What do the police stations do? What do the mahilathanas, mahilathanas are the women's police stations. How do the village elders talk about it? How do the women's family talk about it? How does she herself understand it? How do her friends understand it? So there were so many different conversations I had and so many different ways in which the people were thinking and talking and writing or not really writing about it, but were were um, explaining this phenomenon that it there was a rich sort of landscape of the ways in which rape gets to be understood and navigated by different groups of people, you know, in the wake of a rape charge. Now, when I'm saying rape charge, I don't really mean necessarily a formal charge. Sometimes it can be going to the police station and an FIR gets lodged, or sometimes it can just be the, the allegation of rape um, and so on and so forth. So the question of semiotics of rape in the book really is not why rape happens, but what does rape do? Thank
0: you so much for sharing that. Um, so that takes us to the next that you discuss in the book which is the distinction between sexual subjectivity versus sexual agency so could you elaborate that distinction a little bit and also talk about how does um how that relates to abjection okay so one of the
1: things that i write in the book is that i focus on sexual subjectivity by paying attention to how women navigate their cases that is the women who were victim survivors navigate the cases And what is it that they have to say about the choices they make and how they at times defy the abjection to which they are subject? Now, what do I mean by that? There is a distinction between sexual agency and sexual subjectivity, and I focus on the latter, which is sexual subjectivity. Sexual agency is evident in the fact that people make choices to have relationships with other people let me explain by a story um, of one of the characters I talk about in the first chapter, which is on consent. Um, And there's a story of of, of a young woman I call Kavita. And um, Kavita was in a relationship with a, Kavita is um, Dalit and she is in, excuse me, this is a story about Vinita, who is Dalit, and she's in a relationship with Pradeep, who is Jart. Um, and, uh, Vinita gets into a relationship with Pradeep with whom she's been having a relationship for the past five years. Now, it may not have been the most, um, wise choice for the relationship or whatever else, but the fact is that she does get into this relationship with this, with this person. Now in Haryana, as well as elsewhere, there are multiple cases filed by women who are, filing cases against their former lovers because they have um, either the affair has been discovered or that the relationship has soured, or what is also often referred to as a breach of promise to marry. Now, in those relationships, which were in, you know, the relationships breaks down, the relationship soured, there is a promise, etc. Sometimes they are between people of different caste, and very often in some of these cases is a dominant caste man who sort of you know, seduces or lures a, a, a subordinate caste woman. The issue is that in these cases, there is sexual agency in that a person, um, this woman is exercising some degree of choice in order to get into a relationship, even if that relationship may not be wise and may not in fact end up in the way that she may want it to, which is in a marriage, right? Sexual subjectivity is a different matter, and it's a matter in which we shift our attention to thinking really about how is it that women are thinking about their cases. And sometimes the kinds of choices they make perplex academics or activists or lawyers or people even fighting on their behalf. So let me give you a story of a young woman I call Komal. Komal was allegedly gang raped by four men Uh, two JAT and two OBC, that is the other backward classes. And when her case went into um, court and was sort of getting um, through the process, there was also talk in the village of a compromise. A compromise is a out-of-court settlement between the accused and um, the victim. And it is against the law in uh, criminal cases in India. Komal insisted when the compromise was being talked about in the village that it is a good outcome, that she wanted this to happen. And I was concerned when I spoke to her that this was because of coercion, which is also quite common for subordinate castes because they depend on the dominant caste for livelihood. The ability to coerce them into compromising their case is quite common. So I was quite concerned that Komal and her family were being coerced by the dominant castes to compromise their case, to sort of end it out of court. But she insisted that this was the outcome that she wanted, and she kept talking about it in that way. And so in some ways, part of the story and the question that I'm asking really is, what did compromise allow Komal to recuperate, right? Right. While the outcome of her case, and I'm reading from my book, while the outcome of her case is contrary to more conventional notions of justice that seek a guilty verdict and accountability through incarceration, and while the outcome was disappointing for activists who wanted to see whoever raped and beat Komal be convicted for the crimes against her, what can we understand about Komal's own insistence that the outcome was a good one. What can we learn by taking her claim seriously and not dismissing it as a mere misguided or simple product of fear and exhaustion? So subjectivity to me is really a story about taking how is it that women think about their cases, what they have to say about them, and really listening to the ways in which they think about what the outcome is, best or the ways in which they think about um, what is um, significant and meaningful for them.
0: Yeah, thank you um, for explaining that. So at one point in the book, you note that to critically understand the rape scripts, it is critical to examine the history and political landscape of our place. Could you speak about that? and also discuss the politics of land and land ownership, especially in communities where the disputes are between like land owner caste and other caste who work for them. Right.
1: So as I mentioned, Haryana is 60% rural. Um, The predominant agriculture, um, predominant industry is agriculture. Um, That's what most of the land is um, used to do. Um, Jarts own, Jarts the dominant caste own 80% of the land. And Dalits own only 2% of the land. Given this massive disparity, um, when I began to go to rural Haryana, um, I began to also speak with farmers, Jart farmers, Panchayats people, this is the village council and others. And throughout the conversation was consistently about the fact that agriculture was in crisis. And it's in crisis and it has been in crisis for a while. It has been in crisis since about the 1980s. And what I mean by that is that agriculture no longer is able to make the kind of living that um, rural folk were able to in the past. The Green Revolution, which was something that affected Punjab, both in Pakistan and in India, and Haryana, Haryana was culled from actually Punjab in 1966, but it affected this large swath of of land, propelled Haryana from being a backward state, a state that really didn't make a lot of money, et cetera, into a state that was one of the highest GDPs in India. It made massive amounts of money and made the rural agricultural jart caste very wealthy and also really politically very prominent. That jart caste has seen a decline of fortune, both politically and otherwise, from the eighties into the nineties. So no longer in Haryana's GDP is agriculture so high. In fact, what is high is industry, service, and, and real estate. So I was fascinated by the fact that in this mix of massive rural crisis and decline, where the Jarts were feeling very much the sense of the fact that their their fortunes that they had enjoyed, that the people that I was meeting, their grandparents and parents, in fact, had enjoyed a degree of both um, financial strength, but also political strength in the state with chief ministers and the bureaucracy filled with um, the JART cast, had begun to see the fact that much of that had begun to wane, had begun to sort of go away. It is in that context that JARTs had been organizing and looking at Um, political formations to try and push for getting an OBC status and other backward classes status. The other backward classes is a designation by the government of India that recognizes groups of people that are both socially and educationally disenfranchised and offers them up to 27 percent sort of affirmative action or reservation in government jobs and educational institutions And the jarts saw that as an opportunity for them to claim that and had not been successful. In the same period of the declining of jarts, what had also been emerging um, and that other scholars had been writing about this is that the kinds of social and educational programs that the government of India had put in place for specifically lower caste or poor had allowed for a modicum, a modicum of upward mobility for those that were Dalits or subordinate caste. For jarts, the fact that their fortunes were declining at the time when they saw others that are particularly subordinate caste and Dalits have some degree of modicum of of success or ability to move out of sort of servitude rankled. It really bothered them. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, because of the disproportionate uh, land ownership, the majority of Dalits that work in the farms, etc., work on jart farms and are beholden to jarts for being able to you know graze their, their buffaloes or other kinds of things in order to make a living. That structure that sort of political, economic, and caste context pervaded every conversation I had. Regardless of whether or not the sexual assault was related to a dispute over land, the fact of the matter is, you really cannot understand caste politics or anything that is happening without understanding the relationship of caste to land. The ways in which I heard it um, said by um, Jart people was they said that Zameen um, ko bahu or beti mank tehe. That is, they consider land their daughters and their daughters in law. So there was an enormous significance given to land, both not only in terms of the political economy of it, but in terms of the symbolism that it held within the Jart cultural landscape and they were reluctant to ever let it go. So even when I spoke to young jar boys who were looking for jobs elsewhere, preferably in a government institution, they were very clear that while they kept looking for jobs elsewhere, they would never give up their land.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks a lot for explaining that and talking more about that. So with the changes in women's sexual agency and increasing and changing conversations about consent, could you also comment on how the use, meaning, and significance of consent or mercy has changed?
1: You know, um, again, so I, I talked about initially this case uh, with a young woman I call Vinita, right, which is about in the in the chapter which is called Consent. And um, in this story, when I when I met with Vinita, um, you know, she talked about the fact that there was a rape case filed against her lover, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I can, I can give you some more details about the case as we continue in our conversation. But one of the things that was apparent initially as I started this research, I began by talking with, I think he was the superintendent of the police or something, sort of high up anyway in the bureaucracy, in one of the districts and I remember going to his office it was this huge office and there were two or three air conditioners running and a large desk and a huge conference table and a board with sort of crime statistics and so you know he was this very tall man and and I asked him about you know and I explained who I was and that I was doing this research and he said to me you know he said Nabbe prasita, Pratishat um, rape cases, which is 90% of rape cases are false. And that statistic did not necessarily surprise me. But it was remarkable to me that that story about the fact that most rape cases are false filters down to even the lowest ranking constable that I met at a Mahila thana. And they all talked about it in this way. It's like, oh, they're all false. They're all filed by women who are r- irresponsible or having affairs, which is what we talked about in the difference between sexual agency and sexual subjectivity. These are all, uh, you know, filed by, you know, when when young women's affairs get discovered, they get filed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this idea about the fact that um, rape cases were false kept coming back to me. And when I asked why they think. It's false. Is because the response they said was, Apni marzi se ho hai. It's happening because of consent. And so the story of Marzi kept emerging over and over and over again. And I began to understand Marzi by the ways in which that they were using it, which is why the book was called Semiotics is because the meaning of the word marzi is not about an autonomous human being giving consent or permission to somebody else. Marzi got perverted to mean corruption, bad girls, girls who are unruly, who are not sort of behaving themselves. And that idea of the fact that marzi gets to be Reimagined imagined as something that is about unruly women uh, came to me as uh, I was having more and more of these conversations because every time they said, Apni marzi se ho raha hai, they proceeded to then give me these elaborate stories of women giving sort of consent or consult- or participating in consensual relationships. And... Um, So, you know, in so many ways, thinking about consent also clarified for me that this book is about a story in which what I am seeking ultimately, I guess, is um, an understanding of the lack of personhood um, or humanity that is accorded to people and women in particular.
0: Yeah, definitely. I thought like this chapter was very compelling because it reminded me so much of the same kind of thing, you know, this kind of becomes um, an over-exercising or almost like misusing or abusing your right to consent in that cultural background, right? So words like, those kinds of things like that are, you know, like very general uh, part of regular conversations, I feel like in um, this specific cultural context.
1: So, yeah, and it gets yeah. used elsewhere as well, right? I mean, even, yeah. even after Nirbhaya or even after any of the rape cases here, right? It's always this sort of victim-blaming narrative yeah. seems to circle around the fact that the reason something happened, bad happened to this person is because they made a bad choice, right? Um, and it's about, you know, their choices being bad rather than an understanding of larger structures or larger ways in which that um, nobody should be, you know, subject to harm. And the fact that you are not taking that seriously, in some ways, to me, was about a denial of humanity and personhood.
0: Yeah, definitely. Exactly. So, you also note that death makes the allegations of rape credible, which is, I think, very true. So, I was wondering if you could comment on the significance of, you know, the use of the word zindalash versus a murdalash in rape cases, because a lot of times, you know, like, they do end up in murders as well.
1: Yeah, so let me actually begin and respond to that by talking about a recent case in a a district in uh, a neighboring state called Uttar Pradesh, which is a large state, a significant state. Um, And um, in that district um, was a gang rape, by the Thakurs of this young Dalit woman from a village called Hatras. And she succumbed and died from her injuries. Um, this is two years ago. And um, the police uh, took her body and cremated it in the middle of the night without the consent of the family. And um, the case became... Uh, huge because a lot of people heard about it again it mobilized civil rights groups and activists and others and most recently the men that were indicted were indicted on a lower charge than the one that is for murder and i can look it up and tell you the exact charges etc but the significance of that story is that why is it that the police felt compelled to cremate her right and um I guess that's what they do with the bodies—they they, they incremate them. One of them, of course, is about the fact that there would be no evidence left. There was evidence collected, but there would be no evidence left. But I think the other part is that, for in the cases that I looked at in this chapter on death, which is, which is the last chapter before um, I conclude the book, are uh, two cases that I talk about um, in the in the book. Um, one of a young woman I call Sheetal and the other of a young woman I call Larli. And in Sheetal's case, she was gang raped um, by 12 men and ultimately four went to jail. But her father saw a video of her assault and consumed pesticide and killed himself. And one of the um, activists and other people that I spoke with about this case Said, you know, that the way in which one of the only ways in which that often subordinate class or caste people have in order to get them recognized by the courts is by um, compelling the court to and the state to um, recognize their injury because the, the predominant mode of the court is to dismiss them and to not recognize the fact that they are worthy of restitution or they are worthy of not being harmed. Consequently, the tactic that they have to deploy is the fact that they don't cremate the body after the body has died in order to um, compel the state to pay attention to them. And so Sheetal's father's body was kept uh, without the rituals of cremation and rituals of, of uh, death in order to ensure that the case would be filed. Now, we want to think about how grotesque of a bargain that is, which is that for people who are subordinate, that the only way in which they can compel a state to accord them the very basic of rights is by withholding or not being allowed the most sort of um, basic and the most um, grief-filled of rituals, which is to um, say goodbye to a loved one. And so part of the story about death is about thinking about that and what does that mean in terms of the fact that the state is compelled and that death is what that makes that happen. I do want to be clear, though, obviously, not all cases where death happens is, you know, where, where the state recognizes, nor do I mean to say that it's only in death can rape cases get recognized. Of course, all of those things happen. It's about actually the relationship between the two that I was exploring, partly because um, one of the first times I met a lawyer who was Talking to me about one of these cases, said to me the cases become serious because of because of the death, and so part of part of that was to recognize that. But the other side of death, which is the question that you were asking, is that whether it is in the case of Nirbhaya, um, Jyoti Singh, and and others, women who survive rape get to be understood as zindalash, and this is. Uh, An uh, a caricature and and a nomenclature given to these women because as if having been raped, you are sullied forever and therefore of no use to society. Therefore, you are a zombie and not worthy, again, of personhood, right? You're not worthy and accorded the fullness of humanity even when you have been harmed, partly only because the the manner in which the predominant manner in which that women get to be understood is by the um, the fact that they can be transacted with in between men in um, order to form alliances or in order for you know whatever else for sort of a patriarchal exchange between men and such that Um, rape then sullies uh, the sort of purity of women and therefore diminishes the value of her in that transaction. So the zindalash is um, a framework that is, you know, applied to women. In fact, um, the Indian government themselves referred to Nirbhaya before she died from her injuries as somebody who would become a zindalash. Now, since then, of course, many feminists and people who are activists and others have um, critiqued that frame compellingly and argued about the fact that women obviously are not defined by their sexuality or their purity or any of those things, or in fact, by the fact that they can be transacted with. Um, And so the Zindalash um, uh, caricature is rejected by feminists and others who who are um, protesting, that that's the dominant way in which that women can be understood.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot for speaking to that. So as we can already say from like much of this conversation, that conducting this kind of research is a very difficult task, especially when we consider the caste factor in there. And also like, if we consider that, the use of rape or sexual violence extends into the land disputes or other personal disputes in these um, cultures as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the challenges of conducting this kind of research.
1: Thank you. Um, That's a great question. So, um, you know, Empirical work, but also work that's particularly around questions of violence is, is very, very, very hard. Um, it's hard for a number of reasons. I mean, it's hard because it's a, it's a difficult thing to do research on. But I think as somebody who is dominant caste and class and also lives um, in, um, in the U.S., uh, I was very concerned about the way in which... Um, my class and caste position, not re-harm and re-traumatize women that I was talking with or, and or their families. So um, I talk about this in the book, in the introduction chapter, which is about the politics of method. And um, here I am, uh, you know, careful to point out that it's not easy to find cases of rape, obviously, right? It's not like I can just go somewhere and sort of harvest them. So the way in which both for the politics of not wanting to re-traumatize but also to be careful as to who I spoke with, the cases I researched were ones that had already been part of networks and what are called fact-finding reports by uh, women's organizations, civil rights organizations, Uh, um, lawyers that were supporting these cases, Dalit rights organizations, and others. And so it's only through them that I got access to these cases. And often the first time I met any of these women were through these these networks. So that is the first thing I want to say. Um, This book is about rape. It's not about necessarily the rape of Dalit women. And why I make that distinction is because I tried hard to find um, cases of rape that were about dominant caste, and it was surprisingly hard to get them. And, um, you know, I met many, 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 many lawyers and and many uh, police officers and others, and they said, of course, rape happens everywhere. It's not just um, amongst the subordinate caste. Um, But very often when a rape case does happen, Uh, amongst dominant castes, it gets suppressed in the village very quickly. And um, they don't let it come out, partly because of efforts at securing reputational damage. And so um, even in a case where I uh, met with a young woman called Kavita, who's dominant caste, who was in a relationship um, with a Dalit man, I had asked Kavita's uh, attorney whether her father would be willing to speak to me. And he said that, yes, he gave me the number, but he said that they were pretty traumatized. So asked that I not speak to them. So I didn't. But um, because there was a great deal of organizing effort and efforts at getting justice for Dalits who have, as has been documented well um, in both fiction, journalism, prose, uh, reports, and activism by lawyers and and scholars and and writers um, um, from the Dalit community. There has been an enormous effort to uh, bring justice for them because they have often received obstruction and denial of justice at every step, starting from the police to the village officials or others. There has been a network created in order to bring uh, justice for um, Dalit victims. Because of that network, there was much more casework available um, and people available to talk with, which is partly why some of the cases that I deal with happen to be all Dalit or, uh, or OBC. Let me shift gears and also then talk a little bit about the politics of doing this work and writing about um, about this as a dominant caste person. Right. I think no matter who we are, right, as academics or filmmakers or journalists or students or activists or anyone, I think we're always implicated in a profound disparity in, in um, structures of power no matter who they are. And part of the work that we do, again, as activists and artists and journalists and academics and whoever else, is an effort to mitigate harm. That's our effort. And I think, I don't think any effort at um, trying to stop harm or trying to fight for justice really is ever pure or clean in some ways, I suppose, and never without conflict. At the same time, I think it is worth saying that particularly the North American Academy has been filled with dominant caste people, and they fill the ranks of professors like I am, and uh, have are are hugely dominant within academic networks. And I think it is um, there is a reckoning that all of us have to face in terms of creating spaces and opening it up for Dalit academics and activists and students. And that needs to be done, period, point blank. Um, and it needs to be done urgently um, in ways that creates openings and spaces. And that at times I think means that um, uh, dominant caste people don't sit on panels and don't speak and you know, have to um, Hold back. The last thing I'll say is I think part of this work also is really uh, a effort at building solidarity. And I think of work on solidarity not so much as a agreement or um, as a way in which that I agree to a campaign, but I've thought about solidarity in my own. Um, work as well as in work with other activists that have taught me this is about a commitment to struggle. And a commitment to struggle is not going to be easy or without conflict or without power differentials. So when I am doing this work or I'm working with activists and others that are Dalit or, um, or other castes, I think part of the effort really is about building solidarity with them. And about figuring out how do I, how do I, you know, work in ways that uh, remain conscious of these kinds of power differences at the same time as all of us are looking to um, bring justice, however and whatever that looks like. Um, and I'll end with this, which is that the critiques that are generated by comrades and feminist friends or organizers that occupy different positions of power may generate what, you know somebody like Sarah Ahmad calls bad feelings, which she says, and I'm gonna quote her here, are creative responses to histories that are unfinished.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to that. So my last question is, how do you suggest academics and readers approach this book or what research directions do you recommend for readers, especially since like this is a book that is specifically focused on rural India and we don't like get to hear a lot about the rural parts of our communities. Thank
1: you. Um, so that's a great question. It's a good way to end it as well, which is that, you know, I, I, as I said, in the beginning of our conversation, I do empirical work, you know, I like talking to people, and I, I want to sort of engage with them and think about how is it that they are um, thinking of their own subjectivities and the ways in which um, they craft their narrative. And um, as a feminist geographer, I'm very invested in particular kinds of places and questions of scale. Um, And so I think about justice as geographically based. So, and by that I mean um, that there is a struggle between universal claims of justice and equality and others and the ways in which that manifests and makes itself apparent in particular places. Having said that though, this is a book about rape It's not a book about rape in rural India. It's a book about rape, period. And I was writing this book consciously in keeping mind in mind um, by drawing on scholars that are based here, predominantly Black feminists. And so I, for example, use Sadia Hartman's work, um, in the ways in which she's thinking very much about the harm that slave women encountered or slaves in general encountered, um, and the ways in which it was unrecognizable, or when was it recognizable by slaveholders or white law. And my sense of using or making that connection between thinking about the harm to Dalit women and the ways in which Sadia Hartman is talking about slavery and the harm done to slave bodies, was not to think about a parallel between those two things. Obviously, these are very different things, but really about understanding how is it that people recuperate a sense of themselves and humanity and others under conditions of profound violence. But also about the fact that I think there is a long history um, that many f- feminists and activists and scholars um, um, uh, from the Dalit community have talked about. Shailaja Payak, for example, writes about a margin-to-margin framework, thinking about these things from different places. Um, then Maurice Andarajan's work, for example, writes about thinking about caste politics in the U.S. and the ways in which it resonates with Black politics. So there's a lot of this work that has already been thinking about it in this way. So... Um, What I would say for people who want to do research, um, you know, in this area or otherwise, um, empirically based work can be one that is um, very much situated in a particular reality and in a particular context and at the same time can speak to sort of a broader um, and a larger set of issues. Um, So I would hope that readers who read this book read it not for An understanding of things that are happening in the third world but rather as a intervention into thinking about rape and the ways in which we talk about it or the discourse around it or how does it get gets to be understood or not understood um, anywhere right rape happens in the U.S. and it happens in France and it happens in Ecuador and it happens in Indonesia and it happens in India it happens everywhere so this book I hope will speak to that conversation and will and parts of it will resonate in whichever way for
0: anybody who who um gets to read it yeah thank you so much for the wonderful conversation rupal